You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And this is Shane. So welcome to Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. All right, Shane, we need to just jump right into this because I have a story I'm very excited to tell you and audience to tell you. <laughs> and uh, this is I, this is so far my favorite story that I've been able to tell. So I hope I do it justice. I don't want to overhype it too much, but I think I think it'll be fun. Okay, so let's set the stage for someone whose name is MacArthur Wheeler. And maybe you've already heard this story, maybe not, but it's a great name to begin with already. MacArthur Wheeler. Okay. Yeah. It's 1994, 1995, and we're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Great city. And, yeah, great city. And we're going to imagine here that, so we've got little MacArthur. Uh, I'm not entirely sure how old he is at this point. He's probably meh, in his mid-20s or so. And maybe he's got this older brother who is like communicating with people through these, these pieces of paper. And MacArthur's like, I'm going to find out what's going on here. So he grabs a piece of paper, and it's completely blank. And he later learns that there was a hidden message on the piece of paper that was written in invisible ink. Now I just made up all that stuff about his brother. I have no idea, but either way he learned about this idea that messages can be hidden on on piece of paper by writing them in lemon juice, right? Okay. You write them on lemon juice. And, uh, and what happens is that the lemon juice just blends right into the paper. It looks like it's not even there. And then what happens is, is if you hold that paper over some kind of light or heating source, probably not like a flame cause it'll just burn the paper. The paper is pretty flammable, but <laughs> you hold over something like low, Low, low heat like a light what it does is that it'll oxidize the lemon juice and it'll turn the juice brown and then it can now be red so that's this whole idea of the invisible ink sort of where that one way that that where that comes from okay okay so the the budding scientist that MacArthur Wheeler was he, he was intrigued and inspired the the uh, the power that the lemons had to create this invisible ink right and unfortunately he then found himself pretty soon after that in a situation where he really needed some cash i'm guessing to pay off his espionage and scientific training because he's this you know he's intrigued in these things of course but regardless whatever it was he found that he really needed some cash and so he decided to go out and buy a bunch of lemons because he had a plan and so on april 19th 1995 the middle of the day wheeler walks into a bank pulls out a gun and demands the money so did he squirt lemon juice in their eyes or something no Okay, so I need to know how these lemons work. Like, what's the deal with the lemons? I'm getting there. Okay. I'm ready. But he wasn't done yet. After he robs that bank, he goes into another bank and does the exact same thing. Not squirting lemon juice in their eyes, but he has purchased all these lemons. We'll get to in a moment. Now, interestingly, the bankers may have been a little bit confused at how much Wheeler was sort of cringing and blinking while he's there. Um, and we'll come into this, okay? okay. So... Why are the, the lemons relevant? Well, MacArthur was not actually wearing any kind of mask or disguise or hiding his voice or face in any way whatsoever. And it's the <laughs> middle of the day on a regular day of week. And, I mean, it's 1995, which at this point was quite a while ago. But even back then, banks had security cameras. And, in fact, Wheeler knew that they had security cameras. Interestingly, then the, the police, of course, see the security footage. They identify who the, the person is who robbed these banks, and they arrive at his home to arrest him. And they even show him some of the videos saying, like, you robbed a bank. Here's a video of, of you robbing the bank. And what do you think that he maybe said? Oh, I'm... <laughs> uh, he said, how did you... I, I could imagine he would say something like, how did you know it was me? Yeah, you're actually not, not as far off as I thought you might be. What he said is, but I wore the juice. And 
the police here are kind of confused by that response, as you might imagine. You, you see, and you maybe figured this out as I was talking about it, MacArthur Wheeler reasoned that because this lemon juice can, can work to make invisible ink, it must be the properties of lemons that grant this invisibility. And so he explains to the police that he had rubbed lemon juice all over his face before robbing the banks because the lemon juice, he believed, made him invisible. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> and that there was no way people could identify him, and, and the cameras wouldn't be able to see him because he would be invisible because he had the <laughs> juice on his face. That is one of the best things I've ever heard. <laughs> and so, of course, at first, at the very first thing they said is, he, if he says, "Okay, I rubbed lemon juice on my face," then the cops sort of thought maybe he's on drugs or maybe he's drunk or something. Not totally sure. No, he was not. He was just that wrong. He apparently even said that he had tested it by taking a picture of himself with lemon juice on his face and claimed that he couldn't see himself in the picture. Really? Which leads me to speculate a little bit in terms of what may have happened here that that could have been the effect. My first guess is that he actually had the camera pointed away from him. And so that when he took the picture and he wasn't (laughs) in it, it's because the camera wasn't pointed at him at all. (laughs) My second guess is that he did point the camera toward him, but pointed it so far out of the way that he couldn't actually see himself. And my third guess, I don't actually even know what else could be another option here. Those are the only two that make any sense. That's amazing. I know. Now, hilariously, he even, and as I mentioned before, he reported that the lemon juice had made the robberies difficult because the lemon juice had been getting in his eyes and he was stinging (laughs) his eyes as he was trying to rob them. That's why he was blinking. (laughs) Exactly. That's why he was blinking and cringing. Oh my god, that's one of the best things I've ever heard, like legitimately. So how wait, so how does he explain lemonade? I, I know, right? And I also was thinking I was thinking, I'm like, do you really believe that you're the first person in all of human history? If this had if this had been true, let's say lemons actually make you invisible. You're the first person in human history to figure this out and try and use it for nefarious reasons. Like wouldn't armies be like growing lemon orchards in like gigantic acre acres to cover their soldiers in lemon juice so that they could like go sneak right onto territory like who wouldn't have done capitalized on this if that was a thing yeah Didn't, soldiers from florida would have been unstoppable <laughs> there's so much citrus here those floridian soldiers that's right <laughs> yeah maybe it's just citrus generally speaking maybe even eating it makes you invisible i don't know so <laughs> that's all right. amazing all right. So anyway, yeah, I, I just had to share that story. And this is actually going to factor in even more relevant when we start talking about what we're talking about today, which I haven't announced yet, but we're going to get to in just a moment. First, moving on from the exciting story that we just told, Shane, how good of a driver do you think you are compared to other drivers? Um, I think I'm a pretty, I think I'm a pretty good driver. Like, I think, it, I think it depends on your definition of good. I would argue that I'm a very safe driver. Okay. Fair enough. Did you know that I'm giving you the statistics a little bit wrong here, but it's something like 90% of people believe that they are better drivers than 90% of people. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, that's so, so 90% of people think they're bet They're, they're in the top 10% of yes. good drivers. Yes. Okay. That have been surveyed. That is to say that um, people kind of radically overestimate how good of a driver they really are. Right. Yeah. And I have a story about myself as well. I think the theme is starting to become a little bit more clear here um, as we're going through this. But when I was learning to play the drums, I remember thinking that I was the greatest thing ever at it. And then I started listening to really, really good drummers. And I started learning really, really difficult music and discovered I am 
not that good at playing the drums, at least when I was uh, picking up. And I certainly got a lot better, but certainly I'm not in like the top 10 drummers of all time. I just, you know, was, I got proficient enough that I could, I could play the drums well and, and would be able to navigate them like anybody, uh, who, who spent a lot of time learning to play the drums. And then another one example for myself is coming right out of undergrad I believed that I knew just about everything that there was to know in the field that I had studied in. Yeah. And then I went to graduate school and realized that I knew very, very little. And the more that the longer I was in graduate school, the more I realized how little I really knew about the scope and depth of the field that I, that I belong to. And I feel like I've heard the story from other people as well, that the more you know, the more you realize how little you know. And that's yeah. kind of a thing. There's so many good examples of this. If you look at Steve Carell's character on the American version of The Office, he plays Michael Scott. He's someone who often seems to think that he knows a lot about things and makes hilariously stupid mistakes because he thinks he knows too much. Um, the character uh, Jason on the show The Good Place is also someone who is portrayed as being incredibly stupid, but like they describe as having massively unearned confidence and just thinking that he knows a lot about what he's going to do. And, and he ends up, uh, this is sort of a spoiler if you haven't seen the show, so skip ahead about 10 seconds, but he ends up dying because he locks himself in a safe while wearing a scuba mask, thinking that the scuba mask is going to help him breathe while he's in the <laughs> safe, <laughs> even though it's not, there's no air hole out of the safe or anything. And then there's a story I just mentioned about MacArthur Wheeler. There's this effect that people will speak with conviction, loudly, emotionally, and with authority and boisterous claims unconcerned about how little they really know about something. And it turns out that this effect that I've been describing for the last 10 minutes and in great detail actually has a name. Interestingly, and this was just a coincidence, but this year just happens to be the 20-year anniversary of the publication of this effect. And um, I want to make sure, because we're talking about this, that we are careful to avoid sounding like we know too much about this in, for today's discussion so that we avoid falling victim to the tendency to overestimate how much we really know about this. And this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes. So I feel like this, like being on this podcast has made me realize how little I know. So thankfully, I'm self-aware enough to recognize that. Um, but this this effect is pretty interesting to see. Like you see people really, really dig into stuff and you're like, that is not even close to accurate. Yeah, absolutely. So this falls under what a category of what might be called cognitive bias. And so this is essentially a thing that people often tend to do that is biased toward a particular, I guess, tendency that may or may not, well, in this case, is not accurate for usually. And when we talk about these these types of cognitive biases, they tend to be something that is a mistake in, in, a, in a way of thinking or sort of a, a logical error in one's thinking. And one of the foundational pieces about the Dunning-Kruger effect is another psychological process or bias called confirmation bias. And this is basically what it sounds like, okay? Essentially, the gist of this is that we can't possibly know everything in the world. So we learn about, you know, we learn what we can, um, as much as we can, when we can. And we we can be fairly selective in what we choose to learn while still spending a lot of time and effort on that sliver of information that we chose to take on. Now, because of this, we can have the impression that we have really done our due diligence in learning about our topic of interest. And confirmation by 
bias is when we then look for information that confirms our pre-existing beliefs and we ignore or dismiss any information that contradicts our pre-existing beliefs. And we only recall in a way that allows us to feel more correct about those beliefs. And so the reason that these are related is because as we go about learning things, as I said, we're going to just sort of, we have to choose what we're going to learn. We, there are some things about which we can learn everything there is to know, but there are a lot of things that we can't. And so when we still only choose those things that confirm the beliefs that we already have, then we, uh, we are falling victim to that confirmation bias. A, a very clear example of this are the flat earthers. Oh, flat earthers. Yeah. They have members all around the globe. Did you know that? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I remember you telling me that. And I had recently watched the documentary that w- that is, at the time of this recording, on Netflix called Beyond the Curve, which is a great documentary. And in this, you see this so clearly, where there is an abundance of information that the Earth is not flat. So much that I don't I can't really wrap my head around the position that they take, but they will specifically ignore all of that, downplay it, give it some very bizarre explanation for how it's the case, and they only will accept information that confirms their pre-existing opinion. UFO hunters, same exact thing. Yeah, and like in, in visiting mediums, and there's there's a lot of different, and I, those are I feel like these are, are examples of people that seem like they have like more outlandish types of beliefs like uh we talk about like ghost hunters and stuff like that and how it just kind of like perpetuates bigfoot like all the uh, cryptozoology stuff like which is really interesting to see but what ends up happening is people kind of talk in the echo chamber right like they kind of like they collaborate and they corroborate with people that share those same opinions and they kind of back and forth confirm each other and then it eventually turns into this big thing now and these are kind of more like funny or less harmful i would say types of examples, but you see this in, in like American politics right now, very specifically, nobody can have like a, a, a conversation about discourse when you're talking about different political ideologies, like nobody can really have that conversation because of they, they, they speak in these echo chambers and they kind of confirm their own things, even though data might present something else. Yeah. I mean, you see people who will make arguments for and against immigration and they will only accept information that confirms their opinion about that thing or for and against GMOs or for and against vaccines. And some of these things, there's relatively clear scientific information that backs up those things. Now, all of this is just talking about confirmation biases. We need to get into the actual Dunning-Kruger effect thing. But the, the point of this is that this tends to be pretty emotionally charged and often about these controversial topics, as you had mentioned. And so people will get when they're that emotionally invested in something, then they will absolutely dig in their heels and uh, and put the, their backs up against the wall in terms of refusing to admit an alternative to their position. Absolutely. And it just kind of snowballs from there. So it becomes a little bit of a problem because then they just kind of like their, their opinion flies in the face of you or like their perceived facts fly in the face of like, what's the actual truth. So let's go ahead and get into the background of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Now, if you were to actually read the original article, the very first paragraph describes the story about MacArthur Wheeler. And so there is, I I saw some sources that actually indicated that the entire research line that was spawned by the Dunning-Kruger effect was in fact inspired by the incredible level of confidence that MacArthur Wheeler must have had uh, when he went in to rob those banks. And so these two psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, um, I'll talk about more in a second, they actually set out to do some experiments experiments on this effect of this sort of high confidence, low competence in human bias that led to Wheeler's unfortunate decision. Now, about four years after Wheeler's story, so we're now in 1999, we have Dr. David Dunning, and he deigned to disseminate with his graduate student 
at the time graduate student, Justin Kruger, and they published a paper outlining the effect that was observed with respect to this overconfidence thing. Yeah, and so this paper that they put out in 1999 was called Unskilled and Unaware of It, How Difficulties in Recognizing One's Own Incompetence Lead to Inflated Self-Assessments, which is just such a great, it's a great title. Isn't that so good? Like, <laughs> That's so good. Sci- scientific papers do not need to have these boring and dull titles like that. This is like one of the most highly cited publication ever and it has this awesome title. So have you seen that uh, that thing in academia where you say Harry Potter and the and that's like a new movie like Harry Potter and the unskilled and unaware of it how difficult like this one doesn't fit as well but some of them do and you're like oh that's good like no Harry, that's awesome. Harry, I love Harry it. Potter and the self-assessment of inc- incompetence among those with Dunning-Kruger effect like you know it might be something <laughs> like that it's pretty cool there you go all right so um, this this effect as it's clear now, and as I mentioned earlier, has become famous and known appropriately enough as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And their original paper described four experiments used to examine the effect. So let's go ahead and dive into those experiments. All right. So as part of these four experiments, they tested humor, grammar, logical, and calibrating competence. So they kind of tested all these things. And in the first experiment, 65 participants were asked how good they were at judging whether or not something could be perceived as funny. Uh, which is great because I think things are hilarious. So that I would be a participant in this. Um, <laughs> and then asked to do well, that very thing. Those participants who presumed to be among the greatest judges of humor performed worse than all the other participants, whereas those that guessed that they weren't exceptional judges um, but were actually pretty knowledgeable about the content, or ac- they actually performed pretty well, or at least closer to that predicted level in, in within the with across subjects. Now, I think you might be able to look at this and immediately recognize, well, humor is pretty subjective and whether or not someone does well at being funny is going to depend on their audience and and various other sort of subjective interpretations. And the authors recognize this. And so concerned with that subjectivity of something like humor and interested in seeing whether they could replicate those results with a different group, they chose a more sort of objective test to try their their experiment again in a different domain. So in experiment two, they had 45 undergraduate students, of course, because where else would you get your population from? Right. And they told those students that they were taking a logic slash reasoning test. And then after the test, they were asked to estimate their logic slash reasoning ability compared to the other students specifically. So how well do you think that you did compared to the other students who would also take this test? And also how well they did compared to other people taking the test and how many of the answers they actually got correctly. So they were like, uh, how good do you think you are at logic and reasoning? How much better at this do you think or how well do you think you did at this compared to other students? How many do you think you got correct? Those are sort of the three ways that they asked them. This study produced one of the most famous graphs ever. Actually, all of these experiments have very similar graphs. But this, this one in particular I saw being used in other publications elsewhere. In which it's clearly observed that on average, participants rated themselves at least on par with much more competent students and then performed at the bottom 25th percentile, the bottom (laughs) quartile of the entire distribution. Whereas students who were more competent actually rated themselves about the same and even in some cases less than those other students than the least competent performers. And they actually did much better than they guessed that they would do. What you saw is that people rated themselves fairly similarly in terms of what they expected, but the highest performers actually really outperformed where they rated themselves and the lowest performers way overestimated how well uh, their performance was. Now those people that did know quite a bit more about the subject. They were closer to their actual performance, but they uh, still did underrate themselves a little bit. I love that it just speaks to the idea that like 
besides the fact that people overestimate their competence, that there are people who are competent that way underestimate it too. Like I like that there's that other right. side of the coin. Like yeah. I think that's pretty interesting. I, I feel like uh, you know, I feel like that's probably where maybe the discussion around imposter syndrome gets sparked a little bit. Like Ooh, you, I like that. You know. So um so experiment three followed basically the same format and this time with 84 undergrad participants. So they had a pretty big pool of undergrads. That's great. Like, a, yeah, that's right. Lucky for them. Uh, and so the results were very similar to the first two tests. And, and then they did a follow up that they called takes one to no one. Uh, in which, <laughs> I just love their titles. They're so good. I love that they're like just very like they're just very human scientists. Like that's so great. Yeah. So in the takes one to no one follow up, what they did was they asked the lowest and highest performing students to grade each or to grade these tests from other students by answering how many they thought the other students had answered correctly. So that's oh that's so good. Right? Um, <laughs> Isn't that clever? <laughs> and then they received their own tests back and were asked to guess how well they performed relative to the test they had graded. So this one's just getting at a little bit deeper dive on how people would rate themselves in comparison to others and giving them sort of an another way of looking at it when they not only do they just guess how well they, they perform, but they actually look at other performance and then try and guess how well they perform. Okay, this is such a deep dive on this. So great. So the low performers increased their perceived performance of themselves on average, unable to recognize their own weaknesses, and became even less accurate at gauging their abilities. So they found that like those people who are low performers were still not able to recognize their own weaknesses. Well, and, and they almost doubled down on it too. So they went from like they already thought that they were they were pretty hot stuff. Then they looked at everyone else's tests. Incidentally, some of those tests where people did much better than they did. And then they're like, Wow, I really am a genius and thought that they were even better <laughs> after that. Even though these were the low like these in the bottom twenty fifth percentile performance wise. Right. And then the high performers did also increase their personal estimations as well because they could better calibrate their performance and became more accurate in their ability to gauge their performance. So the higher performance were able to kind of get closer to that that mark. Right. So they would they sort of undersold themselves initially, but then as they got to actually compare their performance to others, they were, they had a better system by which they could actually evaluate their own performance because they had the appropriate level of competence needed to make that estimation whereas otherwise they tend to guess pretty conservatively now that they have more information they can make a good educated guess low performers on the other hand are like straight out of idiocracy they're like i am flying high because the world is my oyster and like even though they're wrong about basically everything they're like i'm gonna stick to my guns because i can and that was not a comment on firearms by the way that was stick to my guns as in holding my ground but all right yeah Finally, in experiment four, um, just, I, I honestly was not trying to make a pun there. I was legitimately concerned that people thought I was making a political statement. <laughs> anyway, in experiment four, this was essentially another uh, type of logic test. This time they got up to 140 undergraduate students and basically had the same results as, as before. So essentially they replicated this three times. They got four different studies showing about the same thing um, with respect to those people who, when they had a high level of confidence they would vastly overestimate how well they actually were at performing. Dunning said, quote, ignorant people do not recognize, scratch that, cannot recognize just how incompetent they are. 
end quote. And so he's sort of encapsulating the effects here. He also had a few more quotes I really liked that um, I'm actually not sure that these were all from the article. I found these in various places and I just kind of grabbed them as I saw them because they all were so good. Another quote, and his name was Dr. David Dunning, again, just to make sure people are out there. He said, quote, What's curious is that, in many cases, incompetence does not leave people disoriented, perplexed, or cautious. Instead, the incompetent are often blessed with an inappropriate confidence buoyed by something that feels to them like knowledge. End quote. <laughs> Isn't that so good? I love, I love how it's just, it's basically just saying like stupid people, not, stu- I shouldn't say stupid. They're not stupid because no. these could be yeah, smart people. They just are. Right. Li- I, so let me, let me rephrase that. People that, that literally don't know about a particular bit of information will like lean so heavily into something that they feel like is knowledge. Like that they feel like they know it. They lean so hard into it that yeah. they're not like, no, nah, maybe I don't know. I had an idea for a shirt for why we do what we do. That was looked like a multiple choice test. And it was like, they answered almost every question. And one of the options was it feels right. And it was like <laughs> incorrect. <laughs> that's not and that's ever. a lot of what this is. Right. Yeah, exactly. Is yeah. It, you'll have those people who like, well, it makes logical or an intuitive sense or it feels right to me. It has that truthiness thing to it to have it be this way. So I'm going to lean into this full tilt and, and really hold my ground. And although I, they didn't, the study was not designed to show this one effect specifically, uh, the effect that I'm about to say is that what often happens is that when someone declares a position on something, they will often find themselves compelled to defend that position tooth and nail, even though they have no reason to believe that that position is a legitimate one and yeah. and then they will go through that confirmation bias cycle where they look for every conceivable piece of information they can to make them feel right about that position they arbitrarily chose in the first place it's just it's kind of incredible yeah and and i slipped up before this is not stupid people they can be very incredibly smart people and and so he actually has a quote specific to that so he goes on to say quote An ignorant mind is precisely not a spotless, empty vessel, but one that's filled with the clutter of irrelevant or misleading life experiences, theories, facts, intuitions, strategies, algorithms, heuristics, metaphors, and hunches that regrettably have the look and feel of useful and accurate knowledge. So essentially what he's saying is there's all this information that sounds good, it feels right, and they're not people that are dumb. They're taking that information, they're synthesizing that information that they have and turning it into an argument or a position that's not quite accurate. And I mean, that almost feels like politics in a nutshell to me. Like this is, this is where people will get on major controversial topics and they will, they will have a lot of quote unquote information about that topic And again, as you said, it's not, and as he said, it's not that they're stupid and it's not that their mind is empty. It's that it is filled with the wrong stuff and being filled with the wrong stuff has the impression of being well-informed, but it's, it's not well, it's informed in a way, but it's not well-informed. It's not meaningfully informed. It's not accurately informed even. Yes, exactly. So, and so another thing uh, that's part of that is it, it becomes so well-formed that it becomes almost static. And that's part of the issue too, is it's, it's, it's with new facts and new information, people don't budge on their position. So when they create these, these, these ideas or or when they create this like body of knowledge it doesn't move and that's that's part of the problem with this too is it's it's more it's less about how people kind of come into all this but more about how when they get 
like when they put when they dig their heels in, they don't get out of it. Yeah, I mean, so one way to summarize this, and I'm not actually pulling this from the source material. I, I made this up, but one thing that the theme that really occurred to me as I was looking through this research is is to summarize this by saying that people don't know what they don't know. It's when when you don't have a a frame of reference for this, then you don't know that you don't have a frame of reference for this, and there is potentially a world's worth of knowledge of things that you don't even know that you don't know. Like an example of this. I have frequently heard people talk about the field of study that I went into. And someone even specifically said to me, how is there a whole degree that you can get on that? How is there more than like a class worth or even like a day of a class worth of subject for that material? And it's because they're so oblivious to the things that they, that they, to which they've had so little exposure and apparently believe that their experiences have encompassed the vast majority of the human experience (laughs) that one can have. That they don't even know that that is something that they don't know that they're missing. And that's true for me as well. Like I don't like I might look at a field like there is probably a whole field of people that just study like paint texture. I'm just making that up. I don't actually know if that's a thing. But like I would think like how much is there really to know about that? That seems like such a simple topic and be completely wrong. And again, I I don't know if that's actually a thing, but there are going to be fields like that where it seems to me. That seems like something you could learn from a five-minute YouTube video, and I'm and actually there are people who will spend years researching and studying and learning everything there is to know about that subject, and I wouldn't even know that that was something I was missing. Yeah, when I when I started studying uh, in my in my doctoral program, they basically said that you develop this level of knowledge that you get a very specific understanding about a very specific topic to such a fine point that you end up being the only person in the world that really understands that topic to that depth. I mean, you're talking about seven billion people. And you're the person that knows about that particular topic. Like when you do your dissertation, you are the expert on that topic at that point in time. And even then, you're not even really the expert. Yeah. And there's still plenty to learn about that particular pinpoint of, of study. Right. So, yeah, I mean, this is just there. there is a little bit of hubris in here and thinking that you that whoever it is and, and, and it could be me or, or you or anybody where you sort of think, well, I've learned enough about the world that I know all the things, at least generally the categories of things that there are to know. And so part of the point of this is really just to illuminate, like be open and willing to acknowledge the fact that there might be things out there that you don't know that you're missing. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's perfectly appropriate. So that's kind of the thing about all this. Is it's not just those stupid people who fall victim to this. Like we're all pretty good at a small handful of things, right? We all have our own experience. I think Bill Nye says specifically, you can learn something new from every person that you meet. Like, I think that's one of the best nice. things I've ever heard. Like, I love that. And, and it's really great because every person you meet is, is pretty good at a small handful of things. And we are good at calibrating ourselves with respect to those things. Like we can kind of understand where we're at, but ultimately what's going to happen is that we're not going to be an expert in many other things. Like we're not going to, I'm not like I play bass guitar. I've been playing for almost 20. I've been playing for 20 years now. I'm not anywhere near being an expert and I've been playing for most of my life and not not as good as flea. I'm not, and I'm never going to be as good as flea. That's absurd to think like that's, that's an, (laughs) that's, that's it. That is a, that is a stretch goal. If you will, um, it's never going to contact that meta reference. Yeah. Yeah. You like that? Um, so every brilliant incomprehensibly genius erudite will lack some knowledge about something and will fail to know what they don't know about whatever subject they are not an expert in. 
Everybody, all of us have this. We cannot possibly know all of the things. Yeah, this is a human thing. This is just and and the point of this again is to just be made more aware of our biases that that are out there so that at the very least, we can acknowledge that we maybe don't know as much as we think and maybe be slightly more hesitant about making and really, you know, holding our ground on claims that we maybe are missing information about and at least be open to new information about that thing. Absolutely. I like that. I, I like the, I like the way that sounds. That's nice. <laughs> Thanks. All right, so let's go ahead and get into how this works and why it works and that sort of thing. I mean, we sort of already did elaborate on this a bit, but I think we can really elaborate on this in just a different way that might make it easy to understand or at least just approach it in a way that helps sort of cement it in place. And this is essentially as simple as a logic comparison task, or that's that's the way you can sort of frame it. And so let me say a little bit more about that. Most animals with the ability to sense things, especially visually, can tell the difference between concrete comparisons, such as this thing is bigger than this thing, right? Right. Now, there's a smaller number of animals in the world that can tell the difference between semantic and arbitrary comparisons, such as this thing is more valuable than this thing. Okay. That's why we that's why we put fancy rocks in jewelry. Exactly. That's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is why we hold these little rocks and we will pay exorbitant amounts of money for them is because we can look at that and someone said this is worth a lot more than all the other rocks and we will go okay, here is all my money. And mm-hmm. then and yeah, and so that's the, anyway. <laughs> that's <laughs> that was an excessively political stance on jewelry. <laughs> the the, the Dunning Kruger effect is the extent to which we make comparisons to things that we don't even know exist and we tend to underestimate how vast those things are or at least they might be. And so ancient people likely believed that the moon was fairly small and just a few you know, maybe a few hundred or a few thousand miles off the ground because they really lacked any context or reason to believe that it was otherwise, right? And so this is just the ability to arbitrarily compare what they knew um, to what they were seeing uh, was, it, it, they just didn't have the information. J- just for clarification, the moon is 230,000 miles away-ish, it varies, but it's, it's around that. And, uh, and so it's quite a bit more than you might guess if it's like, wow, that moon must be 100 miles away. <laughs> it's, it's, a bit, it's a little it's a bit, bit more. more yeah it's a, it's a few more i mean and just to kind of like further elaborate on that too like that's a, that's you're talking about like astral bodies and all that but i mean how much is there to know about rabbit poop like i literally don't know i have no idea yeah. but there's a whole study i mean there are people that treat coprophagia like there are people that there's just there there are experts in poop and there are experts in specific types of poop yeah there's probably a lot more to know about this than immediately seems to make sense Right. Absolutely. So, and I mean, to, and just to kind of like press the issue a little bit more, like how much is there to know about installing plumbing? I mean, there are entire professions dedicated to this particular trade, right? And there's so much to know when you're looking at any sort of plumbing. And there, maybe we know a few tasks like how to unclog a drain or um, how to maybe dial a phone so that somebody else can come unclog the drain. I'm not very <laughs> handy myself, um, yeah, but there's just... There's just a lot of stuff that goes into something as particular as a, a particular skill set or particular trade, and that within itself continually evolves, right? So to me, plumbers are just these really cool magicians. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I've tried to take on some home projects myself and thought that, like, well, well, how much, how difficult can it be to install this sink or whatever? And <laughs> turns out, it's enormously difficult and something that I would rather never do again, if possible. And so, it, yeah, it makes me wonder. I'm like, man, someone whose job it is to do this, how 
how do you get so good? Like this thing just seems basically impossible at first glance to me. Um, and again, that's just me highlighting how little I know about that field. Yeah, when I was in high school, I took an electronics class and learned how to like rewire a wall. But then I had to install an outlet somewhere in my house not too long ago. And I was like, I was so paranoid. I was like, I had to go get like a rubber handled screwdriver and turn off all the fuses in the house just to install one thing. I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I literally don't know enough <laughs> to be safe. I'm gonna end up, I'm gonna end up like electrocuting myself. I think there's actually an important point there is you don't know enough to be safe. That's something we should maybe come back to. Yeah, no, for sure. So <laughs> we don't know enough to be safe. So don't just just be aware. Just yeah. just be just be aware of what you try to be aware of what you don't know. Just don't. <laughs> just don't. Just don't ask ask for help. Yeah. So yeah, the more things you learn, the more you're exposed to, the better able you will be to understand the limits of your own knowledge and in your competence in something. Yeah, absolutely. So there's always a few interesting tidbits and considerations that are fun to pepper into a discussion like this. So one thing is that the Dunning-Kruger effect could be described as a form of the overconfidence effect. In fact, I actually had a difficult time telling exactly how these things were different, except it does seem that the Dunning-Kruger effect identified the aspect of the correlation that confidence is reciprocally related to competence, whereas the overconfidence effect really only seems to describe the tendency to overestimate one's ability. And that was the, the example I gave of 90% of people People think they're better drivers than 50 or 90% of other people. And, and it's true of a lot of other things as well. And actually that had me evaluate my own driving and I decided I must be perfectly average. I think Maybe, I might actually be a little bit less than average. And, it, and I'm thinking about like stunt drivers and people who are professional drivers are probably really, really good at it. And I am perfectly capable of navigating a car without getting in an accident most of the time. But I would guess that Probably the best place to put myself is right smack dab in the middle if I really were to think about it carefully. But, And I think that there is the – this, again, wasn't explicitly stated in the Dunning-Kruger effect, but this does seem to also be related to the idea that you mentioned earlier of the imposter effect, which is the idea that – when you are become more and more and more of an expert in something, sometimes you find yourself feeling like you are kind of a fraud or you don't really know that much about what you're doing. And this is a, a thing that happens with people who are in – who achieve a high degree of speciality in a particular subject, they will actually feel a lack of confidence in their competence in that subject because they know how much they don't know. Absolutely. That makes sense. So another thing in here is just, th this is a way to, to think about the stunning Kruger effect and maybe think about yourself and, and just have some consideration around this. And, and the suggestion here is to think of something you're an expert in and how much the average person knows about your area of expertise and how little even that they know, they don't know about your primary subject. And then that is you about everything you're not an expert in. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's the thought experiment I, I'm proposing. And I, and I got this specifically from a book that I'm putting in the show notes called the skeptics guide to the universe book where they, they give this as an example as a way specifically to address the Dunning-Kruger effect. If you think about how little people know about the thing that you are really good at, now apply that to yourself with respect to everything you're not an expert in, which is going to be most things, right? I am not an expert in the climate. I am not an expert in the oceans. I am not an expert in animals. I am not an expert in plants. I'm not an expert in like computers. I'm not an expert in movies or literature or any of those things. I'm an expert in my field and maybe a little bit in board games. And like, so <laughs> those things are, are things that I am, I am very, very, very narrow on. And I feel really confident about those things, but I am utterly average or less than average or, or at least moderately incompetent about everything else in the world about which there are experts. Well, and 
And to kind of further get into that, you, you mentioned like being an expert in your field. Like if I walk into a room full of people that have no experience in my field, then technically I'm the expert in my field that's currently present. But there are things in my field that I have never contacted that or things that blow my mind. I'll pick up a book of something that's in my field and I'm like, what the hell does this even mean? Yeah, right? Yeah, I've seen those. Yeah, I mean, so I think that's an important thing too, is like you might be an expert to some degree and then there's some things that you, like you can always kind of know more about what you know. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, Just one other really quick thing is that this idea of the Dunning-Kruger effect is also related to the notion of something called illusory superiority, um, which is a very similar sort of idea. The the illusion that you are better at something than you are, or you're uh, the best at something and you're not really the best at something. That's just a a general thing. But that's all I had on this. You you good to move on to our take-homes? Yeah, I am good to move on. I think you really nailed it. (laughs) Thanks. Um, I think the very first take home point really should be that there is a massive amount of information that I don't know about this topic. And, Mm -hmm. and I mean, really digging into this, there have been an avalanche of studies that have followed this, that have explored the ins and outs and the depths of this thing that, that continue to be researched because there is so much to know about this topic. Yeah. I think another one is, um, if you hear about something new, that you didn't have any idea existed at all, assume that there is probably a lot more to that thing than you might think at first glance. So there's probably, it's probably like the tip of the iceberg phenomenon, right? Like where you kind of come into contact with a little bit of it, but there's so much more to understand about that within our own universe. Yep. And this is where I get to go a little bit on a soapbox here thing. And I, and I want to just make sure that there's a caveat. One thing that occurred to me as we were talking about this is I could certainly see people who have that confirmation bias, who actually use the discussion we have here as evidence to support their confirmation bias about something for which they are wrong. And so an important caveat here is that just because you might not know what you don't know, or you might not know everything about a particular area, does not mean that all ideas that someone proposed are equally valid and therefore should be given equal weight and consideration or deserve an equal amount of attention and resources to understand. Okay. And furthermore, there are people who will gleefully disseminate completely incorrect information, knowing it's incorrect. That makes it appear as though their argument is supported, even though they just made up that information. So, Here are some very basic things. Homeopathy is not medicine. The earth is round. It was not created five to 7,000 years ago. The earth is not hollow. Humans have landed on the moon. Drinking boiling water is fatal. Chelation can kill you if you don't need it. Vaccines do not cause autism or other neurological diseases. There are not human spirits floating around as ghosts. The good place is or was at the time of wherever you hear this, an amazing TV show. There is no such thing as Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster and the pyramids in the Easter Island were were not built by aliens. These are just things. And just because I say that and I'm not an expert in those things does not mean that the alternative hypothesis is actually a tenable, reasonable place to be. It might not make it often does not make any conceptual sense. And there is often little or no evidence behind it. Okay. It's just, I want to make sure that we really do point out that just because I say I might not be an expert in homeopathy, therefore that is equally valid as a consideration of medicine is knowing as much as I do about it, which again, isn't everything is enough to know that there's nothing there. So I like, I like fire Abraham. (laughs) <laughs> that was good that's right you spit hot fire that's good i did um yeah my, no my, my microphone I'm melted it. yeah yeah also i fully support everything you just said so Thank this you. is 
yeah, like, I endorse that. So if 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 we were if we were politicians and running partners, I would I would absolutely be like, yeah, well, he said. <laughs> so thanks. <laughs> so just displaying humility to look like you're avoiding this effect does not mean your opinion is justified. So again, going back and saying like, well, I don't know, but maybe vaccines cause all the autism. Like if you're kind of going from that route of like, I don't know at all, but this is kind of what it is. It doesn't really give your opinion any sort of, it doesn't hold any water. Like it does just because you're being modest about a situation or, or, or a particular subject doesn't mean that your opinion is still valid, valid about it. There still needs to be some evidence and support for what you're saying. Right. I mean, the point is that armed with the information that you might be overestimating your ability or knowledge about something, Consider questioning how well you really know that thing and try and find conflicting data and learn how and where you might be wrong. Like that's essentially the scientific process is to find where do things not work? Where do they break down? Where is information incorrect? What are considerations that haven't actually been included in the research so far? And figure out how to better understand the world by breaking down the assumptions that we have coming into it. So I guess... One of the big take homes is if by the end of this episode, you're finding yourself questioning what you believe or what you know, then I think that we've done a pretty good job. Yeah. As a general rule, I'd recommend that you assume that anything you don't know about or you aren't an expert in that you there is something for you to learn about that subject. And also keeping in mind that caveat that like it should fit within the parameters of general understanding about how the universe works. Agreed. All right. I have a couple of really cool uh, quotes to close us out, if you don't mind. Yeah, let's do it. So the first one is, quote, the greatest enemy of knowledge is not ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge, end quote. And I don't I don't know the source of that one. I think the source is unknown. I'm not sure. Can I do the Charles Bukowski one? Because I, uh, I have a Charles Bukowski tattoo. Yeah, man. Uh, another one would be, the problem with the world is that the intelligent people are full of doubt while the stupid are full of confidence. And that's either by Charles Bukowski or Bertrand Russell. It's hard to find and pin down I which one both said that. from various sources. Uh, and and it, yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. And then the last one is, quote, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge, end quote. And that was by Charles Darwin, the well-known Charles Darwin, you might say. Thank you, Charles Darwin. Fam- famously, famously uh, yeah. studied Charles Darwin. So, cool. All right. Very good. I feel good about that. Awesome, man. So hopefully, so so now I know, I, I don't know what I don't know, and now I'm afraid that what I know is not enough. <laughs> Great. Well, hopefully it didn't leave you in any sort of existential crisis, but but go out and learn about the world, you know? that's I mean, that'd be my command to myself and you and everyone else. Yeah, I agree with that. I like that. That's a good like charge. A command, request, maybe, I don't know, my suggestion. Suggestion, something like that. recommendation. Yeah. All right, well, that was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for recording with me. Um, yeah, let's course. go ahead and wrap it up there. All right, sounds good. This is Abraham. This is Shane. We're out. See ya. listening to why we do what we do why we do what we do is supported in part by our amazing patrons thank you if you like what you heard consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast you can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends if you have any comments or questions we'd love to hear from you find us at wwd podcast on your favorite social media platforms You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O., Shane, and Miranda. 
Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.